0: whole chapter if, if, if the Lord has led me that way, but I'm going to focus in on specifically uh, verse 31 today, but we're going to talk about verse 31 through verse 47. Heavenly Father, I just ask that your Holy Spirit speak to us during this time as we teach your word and allow our hearts, Lord, to receive what you have to say to us in Jesus' name, Amen. So, again, growing controversy over who Jesus is. John is portraying the reality that as Jesus speaks the truth to the people there in Jerusalem, particularly the Jewish leaders, there is a great opposition that is arising against him. People are frustrated with the fact that Jesus very clearly is stating that he is the Messiah. He's not mincing words. Uh, we'll see a couple of times where people say, well, just tell us clearly, who are you? And he says, I've already told you, but you don't want to receive it. Jesus is very plainly telling them that he is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that they must believe in him if they are to have life in themselves. And because of this uh, very honest, very uh, direct to the point declaration of who he is, there is this uh, opposition to him that is arising. But there is also a a large number of people who are beginning to believe, who are understanding what he is saying, who are seeing the works that he is performing, and they are saying to themselves, there is something to this guy. Just as Nicodemus said in John chapter 3, no one can do the works that you do unless he is sent from God. And so there was a growing number of people who are understanding that, that Jesus has been sent by God. And in verse 31, Jesus responds to these very people, and he says, to the Jews who had believed him, not necessarily believed in him, but to these people who begin, are beginning to see there's something to this guy's message and to the miracles that he is performing. So Jesus says to them, if you hold to my teaching, then you are really my disciples. So he really begins to challenge them. And it's interesting, the term hold there is a Greek term, "meno," And in different places in the New Testament, it's translated as tarry. When Jesus told his disciples to tarry with him in the garden, it's this word. It's also translated to abide or remain or to continue. So Jesus says, if you hold to my teaching, if you abide in my teaching, if you tarry in my teaching, if you continue in my teaching, then you are really my disciples. Jesus told a parable in Matthew chapter 13, a parable of the sower. And most all of you are aware of this parable. It's a parable where the sower goes out to sow seeds. And the seeds fall on a variety of different types of ground. And some of the seeds spring up quickly, but then because of the heat of the day, wither and die. Some of them fall on very shallow soil, and there's no ability for the seed to germinate and to grow. Some of the seeds fall in, a, in an area where there are a lot of weeds, and as the seed begins to grow, the weeds choke out the growth. But there are a few seeds that fall in good soil. And those seeds grow up and produce a crop, some 30-fold, some 60-fold, some 100-fold, Jesus said. The disciples were wondering about this parable, and they said, tell us about the parable of the sower. What does it mean? And Jesus said, the seed is the word of God, and the sower is the son of man. And some of the seed, the Word of God, falls in soil where it has no depth and it can't grow. Some of it is burned as the sun penetrates it. Some of it is choked out by the weeds of life, but some of it will grow. This is the case with Christianity. The Word goes out To the world. And a lot of people, just as here in John chapter 8, they begin to believe. They begin to understand that there is a supernatural reality to this message. But not everyone who begins to believe will grow and produce fruit. In fact, according to the parable, 75% of the seed is destroyed before it is able to produce. Now, that's a sobering parable. And I bring it up because in the context here, Jesus is challenging the people who have a superficial belief in him, who are amazed by the miracles, who are intrigued by the message, but who have not yet held to his teaching. And his teaching is in this book, The Word of God some people have asked me, why do you throw so much Scripture into your messages? And here's the simple answer to that. Because it is in the Scripture, in the the Word of God, that your lives are truly impacted. There's a lot of interesting, unique qualities about the Bible that we need to understand as Christians. We should understand as Christians that are very important for us to grasp The Word of God, it says in Hebrews 4.12, is living. It's alive. It's not just any book. It's not just a book that we can read, put on the shelf, and move on with our life. It's a book that is alive. And as such, it's a book that is able to penetrate our very soul and spirit. That's what that verse, Hebrews 4.12, says. The word of God is sharp and alive. It is able to penetrate unto the soul and to the spirit, the joints and the marrow. It is a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. So this book is unlike any other book that this world has ever seen. The word of God, Jesus said, is eternal. He said, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. And in Isaiah chapter 40, verse 8, it says, The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of a God will abide forever. So the word of God is eternal. Everything else may be destroyed, but the word of God will remain. The word of God is what gives us new birth. It says in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 23, that you are born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable seed, the eternal living Word of God. So all of us who have been born again of the Spirit are also born again of the imperishable seed of the Word of God. That's the new life. That's where it emerges from. The Word of God points us to Jesus. John chapter 5, verse 39, Jesus told the Pharisees, he said, you search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have life, and yet it is these that speak of me. So the Scriptures point us to Jesus Christ. There's really no other book that is going to, in truth, point you to who Jesus really is. There are a lot of books written about Jesus, but this is the book that Jesus said points us to, to the true him. So the word of God is unique, has all these unique qualities. Beyond that, once we become new creatures in Christ, the word of God is useful to us. It says in Second Timothy three uh, sixteen that the word of God is useful for instruction, for rebuke, for teaching, for growing with regards to righteousness. So as believers in Christ, we come to the Word of God because it is useful to us to help us to grow as Christians. The Word of God sanctifies us. John 17, 17, Jesus said, Father, he's in the high priestly prayer, and he's praying to the, the Father, and he says, Father, praying for us, his disciples, he said, sanctify them in the truth. And then he follows that up by saying, Your Word O Lord, is truth. So we are sanctified by the Word of God. And of course, the term sanctified means to be set apart. And this is uh, the, really the wonderful and yet the challenging aspect of the Word of God for us as Christians. Because when we are sanctified, when we are set apart, we look different than the world does. We ought to look different than the world does. That's not that we, we exclude ourselves from the world. We are in the world, but we are not of the world. We are sanctified from it. We are set apart from it. Our lives look different. In fact, Peter said that we Christians are a peculiar people. That is to to mean set aside from the ways that the world conducts business. That all emanates from this book, the Word of God. Jesus said, If you hold to my teaching, if you hold to the word of God, then you are my disciples indeed. Disciples, disciplined ones, taught ones, ones who have learned through following the master. That's what disciples did in the time of Jesus. They would follow after their teacher and they would learn from their teacher's words, from their teacher's lifestyles, from their teacher's knowledge. And they would emulate their teacher, in every respect. Jesus says, if you are my disciples, in fact, if you are my true disciples, you will abide in my teaching. You will hold to the Word of God. So that's why this Word is so important to us. That is why we go to it. Because it has all of these unique qualities, and I've really only scratched the surface of what the Word of God does for us. It's amazing. It's extraordinary. So Jesus is telling his disciples or the people who are beginning to have a belief in him that if they're going to be his true disciples, they will have to abide in, remain in, continue in his teaching. That will prove that they are, in fact, his disciples. And he says, verse 32, then you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Now, this is a phrase that is in many Uh, Colleges, many uh, buildings have it inscribed upon their their doors to know the truth, and the truth will set you free. But we must first ascertain what the truth is. What is the truth? That's what Pilate asked Jesus as Jesus stood before him. Jesus said to Pilate, All those who hear my voice hear the truth, and they obey it. And Pilate (laughs) responded to him. He said, What is truth? You know, Pilate was a Roman. Truth was relative. Truth meant a lot of different things. And in our world today, that is the case as well. I was, I was reading uh, about a poll that was done by George Barna that later became a book called What Americans Believe. And Barna had polled Americans of all different shapes and sizes on a variety of different issues specific to their beliefs. And one group was able to identify themselves as born again, people who were believing Christians, people who held to the teachings of the scriptures. And Barna asked this group if they agreed with the statement there is an absolute objective truth. Agree or disagree? Out of that, born again, set, only 23% agreed that there was an absolute truth. Now, I find that extraordinary, and I find it reflective of the fact that we are so influenced by our culture, so impacted by the winds and waves of our culture that suggests that truth is relative, that there is no discernible, ascertainable, objective, absolute truth. Jesus would say otherwise. I had an experience once. A, a coworker of mine uh, told me this story. I, for those of you who don't know, a large sec- segment of my career was in human services. And this coworker of mine was uh, transporting uh, a youth, a teenager, uh, to a foster home. And the youth, as is often the case with foster kids, had one bag that really was his entire life's possessions. But this youth was an anarchist, or he identified as an anarchist. An- anybody know what an anarchist is? Anarchists are people who don't believe in any rules, don't believe there should any, be any government. but Everybody should just do whatever they want to. So my coworker was was driving him to the foster home, and, and this young man was uh, espousing his philosophy of anarchy. And as they got to the foster home and began to go in, my coworker took his bag and said, this is my bag now put it in the car and said, you can't have it. And the kid, understandably, was very upset because that was everything he had. But according to his philosophy of anarchy, my coworker did what you would expect. I want the bag. It's mine. Of course, he gave it back to the kid but he was making a point. The point being that we can say that there's relative truth; that there's no such thing as an absolute truth, but the fact is we do believe in absolutes when it comes to the impact on us, don't we? So truth, what is the truth? Well, from a Christian perspective, truth is Jesus Christ. And the reflection of Jesus Christ in this book, the Word of God. This is where we go to for truth. Jesus is whom we look to to understand and ascertain truth. Jesus said of himself, I am the way, the truth, and the life. So Jesus said, if you are my disciples, you will abide in my teaching. And if you abide in my teaching, you will know the truth. That is to say, you will know me. You will know my word and you will understand it. And as a result, you will be set free. Now, being set free sounds good, doesn't it? I like freedom. How about you? Freedom sound good to you? And we talk about it a lot in America. What is freedom? So Jesus says, if we're his disciples, if we abide in his teaching, we will know him, we will know the truth and knowing him, Will set us free. But what is freedom? Freedom, I think, is widely misunderstood in America. We have this notion that if we're free, we can do whatever we want to, no chains. No restrictions. I'm free. I can do whatever I want to, regardless of the conventions of of society, regardless of what anybody else thinks. If I am truly free, then I can do whatever I want to. That sort of sounds like the definition of freedom that oftentimes gets uh, put forth. Um, I don't think that's what true freedom is. It's certainly not the freedom that the Bible talks about. Look what Jesus says. Verse 33, the people listening to him respond, and they say, we are Abraham's descendants. We've never been slaves of anyone. Not really true. They had been taken into bondage both by Assyria and by uh, Babylon. So they had been slaves. But they're responding as though they had not. And they say, how can you say that we shall be set free? And Jesus says, very truly. Now here here we get to the crux of what true freedom is. Very truly, I tell you, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. No, Now, a slave has no permanent place in the family, but a son belongs to it forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. True freedom in the Christian sense is the freedom not to do things. Now, I know that that sounds counterintuitive, but it's true. The freedom in the Christian sense is the freedom not to do things, not to subject yourself to slavery, to sin, to do the things that absolutely entice you. When Eve was in the garden and the, the serpent challenged the word of God and said, has God really said that you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Eve Responded, and she gave actually an inaccurate response. She said, Of all the trees in the garden we may eat, except for the tree in the middle of the garden, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But when Eve looked upon the fruit, the Bible said that she saw that it was desirable to eat, it was lovely in appearance to the eyes and good for making one wise. So she was enticed. She, she stepped into the, or the, the serpent's temptation and she ate of the fruit, as did Adam. And from that point forth, humankind has been enslaved to sin. And you have seen it, haven't you? Maybe you've experienced it. That entrance into a behavior that supposedly is going to uh, allow you to be totally free. If you just smoke this pipe, if you just inject this substance, if you just drink this cup, if you just look upon this image, you'll be free. It's something you've never experienced before. It's such a great high. You'll see things. You'll, you'll uh, understand things that you never could before. And then what happens? We become enslaved, we become addicts, and that slavery, Jesus says, exists for everyone who engages in those behaviors. Everyone who sins is a slave to sin. The, the Christian concept of freedom, Paul says in 1 Corinthians six, is the freedom not to do things. In 1 Corinthians 6:19, or 6:12, rather, it says, "All things are lawful to me." And that's true as a Christian. All things are lawful to me. But Paul says, not all things edify. All things are are lawful to me, but I will not be subjected to slavery to anything. As Christians, we are free to what? Love. That's it. That's the freedom in Christianity. Is the freedom to love. Because when we love, there is no restriction upon what we do. Love and do as you please. That's what Augustine said. See, w- freedom in the world's sense is a freedom to just cut loose. There was a, uh, a man a, who at one of the World Series games right after 9-11, they were having a moment of silence because of the victims of 9-11. And in the midst of that moment of silence, this man cried out, Freedom! Freedom, which sounded sort of nice. But was he really free? Was he abiding in love? Was he letting the the group there at that stadium reflect and offer this moment of silence? See, freedom isn't about doing. It's about loving. That's what true freedom is. True freedom is loving. If, If we do whatever we choose to, I can guarantee you that you will become a slave to sin. If you choose to do whatever you want to do, you will become a slave to sin. Now that slavery may look different for different ones of us. I know before I became a Christian, my slavery was to every kind of substance you can possibly imagine. But when I came into knowledge of Jesus Christ, when He saved me out of that life of darkness, He gave me the freedom not to partake. He says the truth will set you free. You will be able to understand the impact of your behavior and you will be able to regulate it not based upon rules and regulations but based upon love. That's where your freedom truly will come. So what kind of freedom can we experience as Christians? Well, certainly as I mentioned, we can experience behavioral freedom. The things that we do when we choose to love according to God's nature, that is true freedom. So be, we can have behavioral freedom. We can have spiritual freedom. We become the children of God. We become new creations in Christ. We are spiritually set free from the bondage of sin. And ultimately, we experience eternal freedom. There is a very powerful line of demarcation between those who believe in Jesus Christ and their eternal destiny in heaven, in paradise, and those who reject the gospel of Jesus Christ go their own path, don't abide in His word, The lake of fire, eternal torment and separation. Now, I know that sounds harsh, but it's in this book. Jesus himself described it. That's the difference in freedom eternally that those who abide in his teaching will experience versus those who choose their own pathway, supposing it to lead them to freedom when in fact it enslaves them and eternally will keep them in bondage. So what's the application here? There's a lot of voices out there today that we can listen to, promising to us a great time. The challenge for you as a Christian is to discern Is that great time based in God's love? If it is, then that's true freedom. Or is it based in man's desire? You have to be discerning in order to understand that. And how do you discern? How do you become disciples of Jesus Christ? By abiding in His teaching, in His Word. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word that does give us light. The psalmist said, your word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. I pray for each one of us, Lord, as we go forth from this place, that we will abide in your word, and we will be your true disciples, and we will know you, the truth and that you will set us free from the sin that has enslaved us and kept us down. Lord, you said that the thief comes to rob and to kill and to destroy, but that you have come that we might have life and have that life more abundantly. It's my prayer, Lord, that this church, which I already know so many in this congregation are experiencing victory in you. They are giving souls salt and light in the community. But for those here, Lord, who have struggled with sin, who are still stumbling, Lord, in the darkness. I pray that this message will take root in their lives, will touch their hearts, and they will begin to walk in freedom. True love, in Jesus' name, amen.